My grandmother used to say, sometimes you got to hug the people you don't like so you know how big to mm. dig the hole in the backyard. <laughs> I'm John Stevens, and this is Pod Have Mercy. Russell, this is Pod Have Mercy. <laughs> we are joined by my friend, and um, has it, become, become a good friend and someone that we talk to a lot, Bishop David Graves, who is a United Methodist Bishop of two conferences. You know how awesome you are to be over two conferences. Not everyone can do that. Alabama, West Florida, and South Georgia, the conference that I moved to Texas from, two bastions of progressive liberalism. <laughs> you are a raging liberal progressive area down there in South Georgia and Alabama, West Florida. Hey, tell us a little bit about you, your story. Well, that's three. That's that sounds like three states. Well, yeah, that it is three states now. It is now. three states. Three yeah, states, yeah. two time zones, two conferences, and the double pay came with it, right? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they just added. <laughs> well, anyway, tell. Go ahead. Go Not ahead. only is it two conferences, but it's 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 what's called two Episcopal areas. That until recently, you know, because of retirees, you uh, retirements, you had a you had a, a bishop in the South Georgia conference because there's, we can't elect bishops. So it's really two Episcopal areas, and that kind of gives it a greater magnitude of what we're talking about. Wow. Um, but I haven't met too many people in Alabama, West Florida, or um, South Georgia that you just described. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> it's, 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 all, it's even like the Texas conference. I mean, it's like where we are. When people start talking about the progressive, liberalized, all this, whatever, and I'm like, dude, li li liberal. Uh, it, it's, it, I tell my brother, yeah, he's a Southern Baptist preacher. And it's like, yeah, for you Methodists, you conservative Methodists, you'd be liberals in the Southern Baptist Church. So, I mean, it's just all relative based on where you are. But tell us a little bit about you. We're going to do this different. We're not getting into paragraph numbers and all that kind of stuff. I want to talk about, I want to talk about a love for the United Methodist Church. I want to talk about who we are. I want to talk about what it means to remain in a mm -hmm. church. I want to talk about unity. Yeah. I want to talk about your passion for that and and really speaking also to people who are traditional and their understandings of a lot of this the things where that there's disagreement on and yet how you remain in the church even if you have a traditional understanding mm -hmm. of marriage and sexuality and all these sorts of things but but just begin tell us a little bit about you and where you're from and how you kind of came into the ministry okay well it's just great to be with both of you today mm -hmm. When it, when it comes down to, um, I really I really don't like to put labels on people because I don't believe Jesus did that. But if you're going to label me in some way, you know, I would have a traditional perspective on uh, human sexuality and some other things. But I would also have a progressive view on some other things as well, especially racism. Um, and for me, I, you know, I was going to a Methodist Episcopal Church South nine months before I was ever born. <laughs> and a lot of us have that story. And um, and then in 1970, I was confirmed in the United Methodist Church. And uh, I really have a great appreciation for the United Methodist Church. Um, I'm a United Methodist. I keep telling people I'm a United Methodist bishop. I'm going to be a United Methodist moving forward, regardless of what other people want to decide. But really, you know, how I came to this role is uh, when I was in college at the University of Tennessee. So I grew up in East, East Tennessee. And if you're serving as the bishop in the state of Alabama and the state of Georgia, you have to be a humble football fan from the University of Tennessee. You, you can't bring that. You can't bring that volunteer stuff down oh, south. Sneaking that in. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about the Georgia Bulldogs and Alabama, predominantly. But all you're in Auburn area, but. I'm in Auburn, the, Auburn Tigers. But Tennessee, but, man, you talk about rivalry with Alabama. That's huge. And so for the last 15, 17 years, I've lost count. I'm, we're just very humble. <laughs> That's because Nick Saban's the coach. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I was uh, going to the University of Tennessee and in business administration and really wanted to, uh, to, to, to really own a fortune 500 company start a business make a lot of money that was kind of my goal and i really wanted to buy a major league baseball team i mean that wow. and, and i wanted to buy the atlanta braves um 
but Ted Turner beat me to it in 1977. <laughs> $10 and at that time, I could hardly come up with $10. But I was going to, to school during the day, and then in the evenings, late afternoons and evenings, I would come, and I was the custodian, one of the custodians of my church that I grew up in. And, um, you know, I was 20 years of age, and I uh, was one night, it was in the summer, it was in August of 1979, and and I was going through locking doors. It was a large membership, large facility, locking doors, turning off air conditioning. I was in the sanctuary, and I just looked back at the pulpit, and I, the question came to my mind, I wonder what it feels like to stand there in that pulpit, look out, and preach. You know, I've been in there many times. I was confirmed, accepted the Lord at that altar. Um, they just allowed me to set up tables and chairs and all that kind of stuff and clean floors. They didn't allow me to go in the sanctuary and clean, but I had to turn stuff off. If, if I had a dollar for every table and chair that I've moved, I would have already uh, been a pretty well. <laughs> you would have bought the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> so I just walked up in that pulpit. In that summer, 1979, and I stood there looking out over all those empty pews, and I heard this voice. This is what I called you to do. Wow. Come on. Now, my naive part said, you know, is there something in here that I need to straighten up or clean? And then I heard the voice again. This is what I called you to do. Here, here I am, an introvert, never want to ask a question in front of people, uh, just trying to mind my own business, uh, just kind of want to know what I want to know for myself. And God says, this is what I called you to. Mm. And it was going and sharing with my pastor over the next two or three weeks. Um, and then on September 29th, 1979 is when I uh, came forward in my congregation that had loved me and nurtured me. Um, and in that congregation was people that had been my high school, my teachers in elementary school, hmm. middle school and high school coaches on the ball field. Uh, and God just did a, a powerful thing in that moment um, because he took a village to get me to that point. And so that's what God called me to proclaim the good news of Jesus. I mean, that's, wow. and so all this denominational stuff that we go through, it yeah. just drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a weapon of mass distraction. <laughs> it really is. And so that, that's how my, that's how it really began in that journey in the local church. And that's why I keep saying that our, yeah. the annual conferences that I serve, we exist for the local church because mm -hmm. that's where ministry takes place Come and on. so everything that we seek to do is how we can empower and equip the, the local church to be in ministry and so over those many years i've had the opportunity to travel all over this world and to see that cross and flame <laughs> all over the place and um even in autonomous areas of, of methodism especially in south america there's that cross and flame and, and to see the work of the United Methodist Church in the world has just blessed my heart. There, yeah. There's really, there's no other group that does what we do. Now it's messy. And you know, when you have a, 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 all the people that we have, uh, it's just like what I call being a part of the family. We have family members that don't act the way they're supposed to act. Uh, but typically we don't kick them out of the family mm -hmm. and we try to work with them and love them in spite of them. And, um, and so uh, I've just seen too much um, of the beauty of what this church does and its connection. And, uh, you know, I just want to be a part of how we move forward today and in the future. Um, I don't want to make assumptions of what could be, what the ifs are, because there's a lot of them. Uh, but that's really where my heart and passion is. And I just want to see us, you know, let, let's just be about my purpose statement for living life is it's all about when I get up in the morning, I, I remind myself, it's all about winning people to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It's all about seeing the unseen. It's transforming lives and changing the corner of the world that God has given me to be a part of. And that really comes out of Matthew 22, 25, um, and Matthew 28. And it really comes out of our purpose statement as United Methodists to make disciples for the transformation of the world. So, Amen. so that's kind of me in a nutshell, John, and um, who I am as a person. Um, and I just love this great church parts of it hurt my heart when I see I'm also a rule follower, you know? Yeah, I am too. Uh, so I like to follow the rules. I like to live in the boundaries. Uh, some people don't. And I know that brings a lot of anxiety to other people. Uh, but that's kind of where I am uh, when you kind of summarize who David Graves is. You know, it, it's interesting to me 
we would talk about people say, well, everybody, you know, bishops are breaking the rules, breaking the rules, breaking the rules. You and I have talked about this. They're, they're really, really breaking the rule on one thing. Well, two, uh, you know, marriage, same-sex marriage, allowing that, which the, our book of discipline doesn't allow, or ordination, which our book of discipline doesn't allow, but they may allow that. But some of these same bishops that will allow that will actually remove a pastor if they're living with someone that they're not married to. Or, <laughs> or if they post something inappropriate on social media, they'll get, uh, you know, they'll get punished for that. I mean, even in the Western jurisdiction, I think there's a bishop going through a, some complaints and things like that, and and they're going through the process and following the rules. So, it, it you 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 and I talked about this recently. There, you know, sometimes a church will leave, and there'll be this stuff where the pastors say, "Well, the United Methodist Church no longer believes in the virgin birth, and they no longer believe in the resurrection of Jesus, <laughs> and all that." That actually just drives me crazy. Uh, me too. Because that's our creeds, our doctrine, our doctrinal standards, our creed, I mean, the creeds that we follow, our articles of religion are the same as they've always been. They haven't changed. Not since 1808. In fact, in in some ways, they've gotten stronger. They have gotten stronger. You know, they're they're assailed, and then we double down on saying, no, actually, we believe this stuff. (laughs) You know? And I don't even think we can change. And it would take an act of. God to change. <laughs> we can't change anything in the book of this. Took an act of God to create them. Is going to have to. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about what are they, what do they call them in the in, in our denomination? We have in those those things are like there's restrictive rules, things that cannot be changed at all, and then there's constitution stuff, and 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 that is really 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 hard to change mm. for us. It's kind of like I tell people it's like the United States of America. You know, we're about as dysfunctional as the government of the United States of America. Uh, but there's a lot of protections of due process and fairness, and we have a judicial court council, like a Supreme Court, and we have a legislative body, and then we have you bishops, you know, who are charged as the executive branch with making sure that everything is followed along and the orders kept and all that good stuff. Right. And I, I just think when I hear some of the ways people talk about the our denomination they'll go out and find one or two or three or i even say 10 or 20 uh, some like the craziest stories and they're true and they're crazy (laughs) you know what i mean and they'll lift it us up and they'll say see this is the future of the united methodist church but i've been in south georgia i've been a lot in alabama you know you have two of the prettiest coastlines (laughs) in all of methodism now, Florida would probably argue with us on that, but you get the Atlantic and the Gulf. That's right. I also get two doses of hurricane possibilities. As well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say in fairness, Georgia coast, most people don't know this, but St. Simon's Island, where I moved from, is the westernmost point on the East Coast. And because the oh, Gulf wow. Stream is so far out, that's why they either hit Florida or they get thrown up into North Carolina. But the last couple of years, Georgia has had a couple of storms that have hit Savannah and areas like that. That's right. And, you know, and it's not just hurricanes, it's tornadoes now. I mean, you know, we're kind of tornado alley in a lot of ways. And, you know, in my six years in Alabama, West Florida, we've had five hurricanes. And somebody said, Bishop, ever since you've been here, it's been a disaster. (laughs) That's what I feel like coming to Houston. It sounds like you. (laughs) Ever since I've been in Houston, it's just been a disaster. You know, speaking of the hurricanes, that's a good thing to talk about. Like, right now, we just raised a lot of money that we sent to UMCOR, Mm -hmm. which is the United Methodist Committee on Relief, Mm -hmm. which when we went through Hurricane Harvey here in Houston, which 52 inches of rain and 12... 24 hours it was it was crazy we were underwater apocalyptic it was apocalyptic and to think about the money that came in from methodists all over the world and to think now that we just you know as soon as things started happening in ukraine Hmm. people here at chapelwood are like what can i do to help what can i do to help yeah and we said give to disaster relief we're going to send it to umcor they're already staged over there working with refugees 
we have church relationships over there in Estonia and all these other places. That is our, 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 our Wesleyan United Methodist connection. We even have one of, the, one of our United Methodist bishops is the bishop over Russia and Ukraine. How hard is that for Bishop Kage? Mm. I mean, you know, we just had a council. We're having council of bishops meeting this week, and uh, we heard a report from UMCOR uh, yesterday, and it's amazing the millions of dollars that have been given and are being funneled to the aid in Ukraine to help refugees, to help people on the ground, and that and that's an, uh, an individual church wouldn't be networked to be able to do that, no, but the no. connection just allows that, and it's someone who's worked for with UMCOR over these last several years. Um, just a tremendous system. We couldn't have made it without them. I mean, no, you know, they no. just help us. Um, and South Georgia's experienced the same thing. I mean, UMCOR is just a great, it's really the number one disaster relief organization because when disasters happen, they look to the United Methodist churches to, to give leadership, whether it's communities. We just had a tornado up near the Savannah area and the, the community and, and uh, the county organizations, they, they turn to the United Methodist church because they know that we're going to, we're organized. We're going to be on the ground feeding people and bringing in teams and all those kind of things. So it's amazing. You know, that's what kind of hurts my heart that, you know, the possibility of that really getting weakened as we think about separating and splintering is what I call it more than anything. You lose that aggregation. I mean, here in, in Houston, we partnered with a variety of other same situation with Harvey. We've, we partnered with a variety of United Methodist churches. We don't all think alike on some of these issues, but we were of one mind to meet the needs that were right in front of us, pulling people out of the water, helping mediate, you know, mitigate people's homes, uh, helping relocate people, repairing. And out of that, you know, UMCOR, just like you said, the conference and UMCOR turned to some of us who were working at this and said, hey, how can we, where you're making a difference here, we want to resource that. And so it's, it's they go and figure out who's doing it, and they put the money in the places that are, are actually doing it. And I, I'm with you. I lament that not only the, the mission and the witness is less whenever you split or splinter um, a church, but, man, there's the power of good that you're able to do um, is decreased. And uh, I think unity is important, but um, we just don't value that much anymore, I don't think. No, we don't. It's in our culture. Disunity is in our culture. If there ever was a time for the church. Yeah, that's right. Church <laughs> universal, to be unified in the mission and ministry, especially after what we've been through the last three years. That's right. What we're doing, you know, what we're going to live through with the political divisions that we have. Yeah. We, yeah, we ought to be bearing witness to something else, right? <laughs> to another kingdom. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I've talked I've talked with you about this, too, is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think the labels are really hard. I mean, even now when we talk about conservative or liberal, you have to define what these things mean. I mean, I, I, I think of myself as pretty conservative on most things. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to find out that um, some people who are very conservative will be offended by some aspects of what Jesus teaches, and some people who would be defined as liberal or progressive are going to be offended by some of the Absolutely. aspects of things Absolutely. That, that Jesus teaches. And I think that when we're talking about like the church, oneness matters to God. And I think it's wired in the very beginning of God, others, self, and creation. And this unity is the form that oneness takes on in our relationship with one another. And I've always thought the, you know, the, the, the Greek word for the devil, diabolos, means to divide. Right. And whenever I see people working to divide, I think the devil is at work here. Um, you know, I, I, I can totally get a sense if someone feels they can't stay in their church or a church feels they can't. I mean, I get it. I, I don't, I can't get it t t all of it, but I mean, it happens. But, um, when we up this to, you know, at a, at a larger level, 
sometimes it seems to me that we're not really actually thinking theologically across all the pews in our church. It's more so like there's a few loud voices that are pushing for an outcome, and people are being driven one way or the other. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, our, our polity is that you could have an annual conference, you know, have 1,200 people vote and enact or, or, or and put things into effect that actually impact 250,000 people. Yeah. Right. That's right. And so the, the unity, I think, matters to Jesus. It matters to Paul and Corinthians. I mean, uh, if you look in Acts 10 or 15, I mean, on and on again, whenever Paul was addressing the divisions in the church, he'd always come back to love and unity. Huh. Huh. Right. And I just, I don't know. It's, it doesn't seem like we... Um, what what do you, what do we go ahead? And, that, and that's where Jesus was. He he was trying to, I mean, he was he was kind of in the center of everybody's life, trying to present the way, the truth, and the life. And when I think about you know, do we just want to be a group of just traditionalists, centrists, and progressives? But look what we lose when we don't have the whole body together. I mean, we lose the rich diversity. Um, and we just kind of become like our you know we just around people like ourselves. That that wasn't where where Jesus was, it wasn't where Wesley was. You know, we throw around Wesley and Jesus on everything. <laughs> and some people that are Cholula, when you really begin to look through it, and and they're not being very Wesleyan at all, and they're not being very Christ-like, and that happens on both sides of the spectrum. And we've really got to think through that, as you said, John, theologically, yeah. um, rather than just my personal preference. Yeah, and unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Right. Unity is, so when we think about God's wired, oneness is a desire of God. You know, oneness is an, an also an ancient spiritual understanding of, you know, one with God, one with self, one with others, one with creation. Right. It's to live into the fullness of what you were created to be. In the New Testament, they use that word teleos, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the perfection that you live into is not perfect that I don't do anything wrong. It's perfect in the sense that I am fully who God created me to be, Amen. or I'm working towards that. Mm -hmm. And so unity is oneness in relationships. Unity is when oneness manifests itself in relationships with others, mm -hmm. right? right? And I would say unity is not something that we have to create. Unity exists. <laughs> we have to live into it, yeah. or we choose not to live into it, yeah. Yeah. despite our diversity. Because God also values diversity. If we just read Genesis and you get God is, loves diversity. So unity is oneness in relationships with others despite our diversity. Uniformity is oneness that is dependent upon everyone being the same or thinking the same about a particular issue. And what United Methodists across the spectrum, and as someone who's considered myself conservative, United Methodist, right, traditional United Methodist, Orthodox, Evangelical, this is what I see. I've always, even coming out of a very conservative, growing up in a very conservative United Methodist church, right. I always knew that not everyone had to, it, <laughs> our, our, this wasn't dependent upon us all being the same, but this is moving from unity to uniformity. There's a desire that we be uniform. And I think it is a cultural thing that's yeah. coming from the culture. It's the spirit of the age. Not, not coming yeah. from that's our right. faith. Yeah, absolutely. It is. I mean, we live in a culture of division. And it carries right on down into the local, to every local church. And, um, you know, just look at politics. You know, look at how the different political systems got, you know, even though they could debate and argue and everything, but they would always kind of come together for the common good. But now you, you look at a Democratic or Republican Party, and, and they're not even in agreement with one another. And so you just kind of see this splintering. I mean, they keep going at one another. And all along the way, um, it's the people that they're put there to represent that suffer. Yeah, and I think they, I think that's, this statement that we, we were just talking about is the same thing we see in American politics. It's that it's not unity in political parties. It's, it's the demand for uniformity. It is dependent upon you 
thinking the way that I do about something. And so, and, and that's on both sides because I would say we don't really have two parties anymore. We almost have four. <laughs> There's like two Democratic parties and two Republican parties. And I think that whole understanding of do you want to be a part of a church that lives in unity, oneness in relationships with others, despite the fact that, that we will, there will be diversity? Can you remain connected? Or are you saying that I can only I be in a church or I want to be in a church where there's uniformity and our oneness is dependent upon us all being the same on these particular issues? And I think that's the big question that mm. local churches and people in the pews are going to have to ask themselves. And you're right. And and this goes back to me that when I think about a church, I think of it like you said earlier as a family. And when you have a family, and your daughter or your son comes home and says, "I'm gay," or any number of whatever things they might bring. But I, I use that one because that's one of the big issues in the denominational struggle. I think about all the ways that I've known people that have responded. There have been a few that have said, you got to move out. You're not a part of this family. You can't sure. come to Thanksgiving if you bring somebody. I, I've, I've known people like oh, yeah, that. Sure. But the vast majority of people that I know, even though they don't agree with it or they don't understand it or they don't necessarily want to bless it, they say, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I love you, and I'm going to wrestle with this, but I'm not kicking you. I'm not leaving you. In my first 14 years of ministry, we're in youth ministry, and I just remember all the conversations I had with, mm-hmm. with young, uh, with youth, both men and women, and their struggle with their human sexuality. And uh, I saw many of them come to the Lord, you know, uh, and accept Christ. And, um, you know, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it all, but, but I know they love Jesus and we had a relationship together. As long as we have those two things moving forward, you know, we're not limiting to what God can do in and through all of us with that. But when we start stereotyping people and putting people out, um, then we've really shut a lot of doors and we, and, and that brings a lot of harm. I've always said, you know, if, if we're not at the table, how can we have any influence with anybody as well? You yeah. know, yeah. I want to be, I, that's what Jesus did. Yeah. He, he was with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really where I want to be. I think that's, and that's why my, my love the United Methodist church, because we're trying, we're inviting everybody at the table. We don't have to agree with everybody. We don't, we can even say, I wish you weren't doing that, or I don't like that. But at the same time, if we're not at the table together, then I can have no influence. And then, you know, they also influence and enrich my life as that's well. Right. And when God's in the middle of it, it's amazing what can happen. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that's that's really helpful to me because I think the table that we're drawn to is a table where the spirit of the living God is, not some rep, replica of an idea. But we say that when the two or three are gathered, the spirit of a Pentecost is there. And so I think that's when the things that are maladjusted in my life, behaviors that are wrong, things that I'm trying to go back to sleep on, you know, that's where I get woken up is in this vast, rich community at the table. And if I cut people off of that table and say, you don't belong or get this right outside of the presence of God, and then you can come back in, we've created a whole theological malpractice uh, uh, in, in, in some ways that, that cut people out from the very table we say is the only place you'll find restoration, change, and transformation, right? I mean, I'm a recovering addict. If I was not able to come to the table, right, if that wasn't a place that somebody had said, no, this is exactly where you need to be, right, then I would have been screwed uh, and continually, you know? And so there's something about a generous table we say, the Holy Spirit's going to be here, and He's going to. We're all going to get changed in the process, mm-hmm. right? All of us are. So, I I think that you know, when I when I wrestle with all of this, you know, a big part of this, as I think about um, how we read Scripture, and this has been talked about a lot. So when we talk about when we use the word traditionalist. We're saying what we're defining is that someone who believes in a traditional understanding of sexuality and marriage. 
And when you read the scripture from the beginning, man and a woman, Paul says man and a woman, all this. But some people read scripture differently. They might look at it as, you know, um, you know, there's there's verbal, plenary, inspiration, Wesleyan lens of grace. That's one of the reasons why you can get to a place where we are now, where our book of discipline says we can remarry people who've been divorced, even if it's not for the reasons Jesus expressly says that they can't get remarried. And, uh, and so we are already traditional compatibilists on divorce and remarriage. And this new splinter or, or whatever the more conservative group of United Methodists that want to leave are traditional compatibilists already on divorce and remarriage. Divorce and remarriage. <clears throat> it's very clear that unless, unless your spouse leaves you because they had an affair or they're an unbeliever and they leave you, if they stay, you have to forgive them. If they stay, you got to stay with them. But if they leave, then you can't. But for any other reason, if you get remarried, you're committing adultery. You are an adulterer and you're making the other person adultery. And I don't read in the scripture where Jesus goes, but that only lasts six months after you serve your penance and you ask for a sufficient amount of forgiveness. We read that scripture and the reason that we have made that move and we changed the book of discipline. The book of discipline used to say, you cannot marry someone who's been divorced except for the one reason. Right. But now it doesn't say that. We can bless, mm -hmm. condone, and we know that remarriage can actually redeem and save people. We know this to be true. Why do we see that? Why do we look at that that way when Jesus specifically says it? We look at it through a Wesleyan lens of grace that we all live in this post-Genesis 3 world Amen. where there is nothing as God created it originally. And so what that means is we're mm. all trying to figure this out. Yeah. We're all doing the best we can empowered by grace. This is why I can look at someone who's LGBTQI whatever plus, and I can say, you, you are not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes, <laughs> right? And now, I may not understand it all. I'm still on my own journey. But when I look at scripture and I see Jesus eating at homes and at a table with sinners and tax collectors, a lot of the times people will say, well, but you know, he's not condoning their sin. Well, of course he's not condoning the sin, but what he was doing is sitting at the table condoning the worth of the sinner and the worth of the tax collector. Humans. Yeah. And I don't know how you do that when you exclude when 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 you say i mean what what is your thought when when people say well we're not excluding anybody we love we love everybody everybody's welcome here <laughs> but you can't be in a relationship with someone else a black person and you can't can, can, serve can, you know, in ministry here and you can't be on staff here and you can't work you can't work with the youth or the children or you can come and sit we love you you can join you can write a check what do you, what do you, how, I don't know how to articulate that because that just doesn't fit to me. Yeah. And then, you know, to kind of back up a little bit, you know, back in the 1800s, you know, the discipline said you couldn't marry anyone unless they were both convert, you know, they both had a conversion experience. They'd accepted the Lord and uh, you couldn't marry somebody that was in that, in those days unsafe. Um, so that changed, as you said. And then around the divorce, you know, that changed because, you know, uh, our human condition, we, we experience that in a greater way. And mm -hmm. as United Methodist pastor, you know, we don't, we don't have to marry anyone. <laughs> and so we all have that choice. Um, and so when we start excluding people, uh, because they are a same sex couple, um, th that's just not what Jesus teaches. That, that's just not where I am. I mean, you know, um, uh, there may be parts of it I don't like or don't approve of maybe, but you know, I, I'm called to be in relationship yeah, yeah, and to share the good news, to extend grace. Um, and I just think that when people come down on those hard lines and it's okay to have those opinions, but you've got choices. But when you come down on those hard lines, you are eliminating people from the table. And to me, that is, um, that's just not Christian. Um, and that's moving toward, um, 
it's breaking across from unity and it's just you know i just believe that m most americans want to be in a church which is everybody that's just like them or a lot of people do and um that's just not what the apostolic church is that is not what the early church was yeah. it's not you know <laughs> and you just wish that jesus had spoken pretty clearly on some things but he but uh especially on on uh, human sexuality a little more but he didn't and what is that telling us yeah you know and i just believe it's 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 harmful when we start excluding people and but you know and i can disagree with somebody i can say i don't agree with where you are i don't you know i don't that's not where i am but i want to hear you i want to listen to you and how do we move forward as the body of christ in the midst of all that we have been given um but so many people want to be legalistic around things they just want to uh and that's just not the gospel no and it's messy and it's hard but we don't want to do the hard work no we don't want to be in the messiness. We want it to be just clean. And Jesus was in the messiness of the messiness. Amen. Amen. And we're called to be Christ. And I mean, if there was ever a time where we need to be Christ-like, it is now. Yeah. So this just breaks my heart that we're in this place. It's almost, and you go back and you view history around, around how we, we have split and splintered over our history. But when you mm -hmm. study the history of that, there has been tremendous harm that has come to people that's right that, that's right yeah and when we study we need to study history so that we won't make some of the same mistakes that we've made yeah. and we're getting ready to repeat the same mistakes that have been made over the last 200 years yeah. of methodism yeah. we're going to do it again yeah, yeah i think there's also that's some right. conversations we, we're going to have um ted campbell on who's a wesleyan scholarly professor at SMU Perkins and you know he and I have talked a lot too about that mm -hmm. unity does not unity and oneness is not just important and wired into Genesis and God's self others and creation unity is it really matters for Methodists and bec and like you said some of the things you said and this is what um, mm -hmm. Ted Campbell was shared with me which he's way too smart for me I, I can't understand most of it he, yeah but this whole way of wiring in the unity and the connectionalism that comes out of that. Mm. He says that that's a, there's a deeply mm. theological aspect to the connectionalism, which is rooted in trust clause, which is rooted in unity. And then, um, so what that means though, is that if you're moving away from connectionalism, away from trust clauses, away from that, you're actually moving away in some way from what it means to be Methodist you know what I mean? And, and so people, we, a lot of times we don't talk to our people about that. And people are so, they, they, they talk about, we're going to get rid of the trust clause and we're going to do all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we're not going to have guaranteed appointments and we're not going to have guaranteed, you know, itinerary the same way and all this is going to be free. And I'm like, you're going to be Baptists. <laughs> my brother is, my brother is Baptist. He's going to be Congregationalist. And, and the, so what I'm saying, to, you know, I, I'm asking the question, and that's why I'm looking forward to talking with Ted about this, is that for me, how this connection matters for Methodists in our church structure, in our worldwide denomination. Somebody was saying, well, if these conferences vote to leave, you know, my question was, does a new conference automatically, you know, spontaneously get created at that action? Um, and people are like, well, you know, I don't know. And, and then you say, well, the book of discipline doesn't say because the book of discipline assumes <laughs> connectionalism. It doesn't offer avenues for <laughs> exits. And so even, even the argument that an annual conference can disaffiliate as a whole, you know what the argument is? Well, it, it doesn't say that you can't. <laughs> That's what I want to live by. Well, I mean, you didn't—you didn't say that I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, that's nuts. That's right. Nuts. So I, I think the unity for Methodists—it's in the preamble of our Constitution. It was Wesley, mm. you know. This um, mm. or was it Wesley that said in Essentials unity, or was that Outler? Or I don't remember. It's attributed to him, but the principle in Essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. charity. And what's happened is. We've started moving things that are non-essentials into the essential category. And instead of saying in essentials unity, we're now 
some of us say, in essentials uniformity. If, Bishop, if, if um, so, if we elected you Pope for a day um, of the Methodist Church, what what would you what would you like? What's the decision you would make, and maybe what is an admonition you'd say? Hey, keep your eye on this um, to to help us help the church writ large um, uh, negotiate itself through these waters that want to divide. Um, what would you what what would you do, or what would you say? What decisions would you make? That, that, that's a huge question, and um, I always tell folks I, I could solve all this in 15 minutes if people would just listen to what I have to say. <laughs> it's like parenting. <laughs> people talk about um, a plan or a structure to do this or to do that. The, the one plan is um, is really, it, it, you know, it's Matthew 22, 25, and 28. And until we focus on putting all of our energies into sharing Christ, making disciples, being in the mission field, that's where, that's where people get unified. And in my, you know, general conference is not going to be for two years. So why can't everybody just lay their stuff down and let's just focus all of our energies on being the church in our community that we're called to be and working together. And then when we have, make decisions that that really give us more than assumptions because we're just dealing we're just living in assumptions we're living in the assumption that well the united methodist church is going to be this we don't know or the global methodist church is going to be this we don't really know at this point they've got a lot of work to do as well um and then if you're an independent group you, you know you're making assumptions there um but what if my if i were the pope for a day i would say this is what we're going to do we're going to lay all this stuff down and we're going to focus on our mission and ministry. And, uh, you know, I've got 50 pastors right now um, in these 50 days of Easter to Pentecost. And each church is, is, is looking to have 50 professions of faith, <laughs> taking 50 new members, do 50 acts of mission. And they've got several other 50s they're going to do. And by the time we get to Pentecost, we're going to be able to proclaim that 3,000 people came to know Christ wow, wow. in the last 50 days because of the work of on, 50 pastors and 50 churches and this, the numbers I'm hearing, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move beyond that. Uh, it, it's just amazing pastors. You know, they they took in 30 here. They're taking in 20 there. They're, they've got 20 next week. I mean, they're just, they're just doing it. And if we did that, we would be like Matthew chapter five. We'd be a city set upon a hill and everybody would be coming and looking. What, what are they doing? Yeah. I want to move toward that. Yeah. That's what I would, that's what I would call everyone to do. And if I could really have the authority, that's what I would tell everybody you're going to do. <laughs> and that's what will change us. Mm. It will change lives and it will change the world. Yeah. And our world is so hungry for that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what God created me to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've just told both these annual conferences, um, once we get past these, you know, we're going to have judicial council ruling soon. We'll know more. We're going to have our annual conferences. We're going to deal with a lot of resolutions and petitions and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to deal with them. And then after that, you know, I really don't want to talk about um, general conference, disaffiliations. All this. I just want us to be the United Methodist Church that we've been called to live and to be in our communities and context. And, um, the problem is, is that we haven't discipled people and we haven't won people to Christ. That's right. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in today right. in many, many ways. And that's not just Methodism. That's our whole culture of our church. Yeah. But I think that it seems like to me that Christians in America are, I've, I've used this term, I stole it from somebody I don't remember, but we've chosen effectiveness over excellence. And instead of being a holy people who are pressing towards sanctification evangelism, sharing the gospel of Christ, feeding people, clothing people, reaching people, being the church instead and, and, and allowing that to be what changes the world. We instead don't do that work very well. And so we put all our eggs in the basket of power and politics and influence, and we tie our, our wagon to these secular forces 
thinking that they're going to be the ones to help us to accomplish the, and that's not going to be Jesus when when in uh, that's right in in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi mm-hmm. and he says to his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" He's there at the uh, at the monument, the Grotto of Pan, which is the god of you know, wild, your own instincts, your own happiness, sensuality, do whatever you want to do, have, just have fun and do, just do what you want to do. But it was also Caesarea, which was a capital city of Rome and a center of power. And so in light of this, he says, who do they say the son of human, humanity is, the son of man? And they say, well, some say you're prophets. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, he lays out in the midst of that, mm. um, who do you say that I am? Of course, Peter makes that remarkable. You're the Messiah, the Lord. And then right there at the seat of power and the seat of sensuality and hedonism and my own, what I want, what I want, what I want. He says, if you want to follow me, Mm. you got to take up your cross and you got to carry it and you got to be willing to lay your life down. That's what the fullness of humanity looks like for us when we live in Christ. That's what it looks like to be everything God created you to be. There's humility. And I just don't think we have that. Do we, he, he said no to power, no to politics. He said no to hedonistic impulse and your own wish and whim and your own desires. He laid his self-denial, um, sacrifice. I just don't know that the church... This is one of the things we've said here. We just, we did not do a good job over the last two years modeling that. We were not ready to be put under the pressure cooker and we did not perform well. And what I see right Mm. now are people who are hungry for a deeper spirituality. Amen. And we don't want to be arguing about this. To me, this is like, this is not moving the needle. And yet we have to have this conversation and it's, it's frustrating. It's disappointing. It is very much so. So, uh, are you in Montgomery or are you in Macon? I'm in Macon today. I'll be in Montgomery tomorrow afternoon. Did Did they uh, get you a private jet to go back and forth from? No, there's no jets. There's no. <laughs> got your private Camry. <laughs> People ask me, uh, Bishop, where do you live? I go. I... <laughs> <laughs> I live multiple places, hotels, Episcopal residences, I, but I travel from place to place. Some days I wake up and I have to remind myself where I actually am. Wow. So, wow. but I'm all over the place. A lot of fun to it, uh, really, because you're meeting great people, you're seeing communities, you're, and, and we've talked about what's not going right, but there's a, there's so many churches that are doing great ministry. I yes. mean, they, they oh, are, yeah. doing, they're making a difference in their community. Pastors are doing, they're working hard. And they're trying to lead their people. They're they're focused on their mission and ministry, and that's what gives me the joy and the energy to to keep to keep going. Um, it feels like to me. What is your thought on? It feels like to me that the vast majority of United Methodists are got their head down doing ministry. This whole issue is just not on the radar. But man, the people who are hot about it are white hot about it, and it's just. But it's a small. It's not a large group of people. It's, it's the way that if, as I look at South Georgia and Alabama, West Florida, and it's like just we talked about with the, the civic virus. Right. You know, the, the, pol- right. the, the small parts of the polarized uh, extreme right and left are the ones that are the most active, the most involved, the most loud. Whereas folks that are on that broad spectrum of the middle are they're not marching out in the streets, you know, yelling, be reasonable. <laughs> They're just they're just doing their work and but, reasonable. But the extremes keep putting information in there and some of it's accurate information, some of it's not. But a lot of it's just assumptions because we're just making it, a lot of this is just assumption based because we really don't have specific answers until we allow processes to take place. That's right. But boy, people are just I mean, that's how this thing got started that we United Methodists don't believe in the virgin birth, don't believe in the Holy Trinity. Because somebody just started saying, well, so-and-so out here is saying they don't believe in that. Well, they may be saying that, but that's not who we are. No. Yeah. And yeah. you're right. Most of the people are keeping their head down and trying to do the work, but it's getting so much harder to do yeah. when you've got all of this. 
coming from both sides. Well, and, and they, like it's just it's a lot of false information that never gets tested. The assumptions are never tested. And one of the things with a healthy organization or a healthy human being is going to test assumptions. And I find that's the one thing people don't do very yeah, well. Yeah. And like someone said, well, you know, the bishop of so-and-so conference, you know, not only are they charging you your pension liability and two years of apportionments, but they're charging you 25% of the worth of your property. And I, you know, I did something that's probably pretty novel to most people. I picked up the phone and I called the bishop, that bishop <laughs> and said, hey, someone said that you're doing this. And they're like, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> it was in a proposal from the trustees and it came to conference, the annual conference, and they removed it. It's not in there. We don't, we don't do that. I was like, oh, well, thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> I, I, I love that you said, Bishop, that we have a process to vet all this, that we can move at the pace of guidance, that we, this, we are not a 13-year-old denomination. You know, we have been through revival. We have been through a country that has split itself over um, slavery. We have come back together. We have, you know, we have prayed um, to be alive yet again, right? And we have processes that when there are questions, we can put them before a process and find the answer, right? And it seems that we can be doing that right now. And, um, yeah. Well, if I, if I were the bishop of South Georgia— and Alabama, West Florida, just so people know, because you, you're going to have folks from Alabama, West Florida. Forward to hearing this now. Yeah, no, me too. This is a big buildup no, right it, here. It's not. It's not going to be anything monumental, other than my big fat happy butt would be living at St. Simon's Island for a week, and then I'd drive on down to Navarre or Orange Beach for a week. And then, you know, in between, I, you can cover a, or a mobile to Savannah, somewhere in there, and you can cover all the churches on the way because that's, that's the two ends of the, of the spectrum. <laughs> and what, no, what I'd do is I'd do a week, a week drive, visit everybody, then a week in Savannah, my big, fat, happy rear end on the beach, mm-hmm. Tybee, and then I'd do a week back visiting all the churches, and then a week at Orange Beach. Got to get some fishing in. At, at Orange Beach. They just need to make a district on the beach and then golf courses and then appoint you as bishop there, See, John. did you think I was going to gonna say, did you think I was going to say something like theological or like to, to solve the polity and the problems of the church? You know, that makes a lot of sense. And that is kind of the blessing. I do get to do that on occasion to, you know, spend a week at Epworth or mm. spend a week at Destin. Or, Beautiful. So, you know, that is a great opportunity. The Gulf and the Atlantic. Well, I still have a lot of friends. The one thing I think we can end on is something you and I have also talked about. We can be done, let you go, get back to work. But I think about all these little churches out there that, um, you know, our church and a lot of larger churches and stuff, we, we, we can get the information that we need. But I'm just thinking organically, what's, what's your word as somebody who's traditional, compatible, and I'm thinking, I, I, my assumption is that the vast majority of United Methodists in the Southeast and South Central U.S. are traditionalists, but I think they're, but I believe they're also compatibilists. And they're being told that if you're traditionalist, you can't be in the United and, Methodist and Church. Can, can I say the opposite is also true, that there are progressives that are compatibilists and people that say com- re- progressives can't be compatible. So there's a lot of folks oh, yeah, that yeah, are yeah. saying, wait a minute, <laughs> we are not a one issue church. We get it. We're going to work out our faith with fear and trembling on a lot of things. But the unity of my brothers and sisters in this place is super important. Right. So, no, yeah, I think people on both right and left yes. who are not compatibilists to their non-compatible are are saying if you're progressive you can't you be can't be UMC, that's not or true. if you're traditional you can't be what do you you say because i think most of the churches yeah. that you're going to serve in in the counties that i know uh in south georgia that mm. that's my home and and have many times driven through alabama west florida on the way to panama city or mobile or pensacola um i think about what's the message to them as a word of comfort through this season but also a message of hope to say you can stay in the United Methodist Church. You don't need to be afraid. No. What's the message you, you say to your churches and your pastors? 
you know, what I've been, you know, what I, what I hear from them uh, as I have traveled around, uh, especially last fall in both of these annual conferences in each district, is I heard um, more about how are we going to be sustainable moving out of COVID? How are we going yeah. to um, to really meet the mission and ministry of our community? Mm. How are we going to have cooperative ministries together? I mean, you, you're hearing them raise up and say, really, they're saying, Bishop, how are you going to help us move forward as the church more yeah. than they are about denomination? Yeah. Um, but we have to really get a clear message that you really need to be informed of all these things, you know, that are going on. You need to get good, accurate information. And we've got a strategic plan um, as we move forward into the summer, into the fall of 2022, this, this year, to really spend the enormous amounts of ta- time, what I call being on the ground, listening and sharing with people and also partnering with people as they move forward. Um, and I, I shared with about 350 uh, folks that were kind of, most of them were small membership uh, churches, some were medium-sized churches. And they, they we got together in Cordell, Georgia. You know where that is? Oh, Georgia. yeah. Yep. Uh, we were expecting about 100 people, over 350 people showed up because they, they came from all over the conference because they just really wanted to get accurate information. And we were able to give that to them and uh, just encouraging people, you know, let's let's just focus on our mission and ministry for the next two years. And then we can perhaps make some more strategic decisions. And I had a young man about 30 years of age come up to me and he said, Bishop, I don't know if this is in Bishop Lingo or not. But what I got out of today was, is that we just need to chill out and do our work. <laughs> yeah. So I want to give out bumper stickers at annual conference. Just chill out and do your do work. Your work. <laughs> That's awesome. Would you ship some here? <laughs> Man, I'm so glad that you joined us today. And uh, I hope any, anybody who's Thank listening in is going to watch or listen in and from South Georgia. I love you. I love those folks, man. Yeah. I miss it. You got a good appointment for me? Easy there. Easy there. Why don't we just <laughs> cut the feed now? <laughs> well, you're very much missed here. And, um, sure you know, when your good friend and my colleague in ministry, Brad Brady, died this, oh past, gosh, yeah, yeah. this past winter, and uh, you were down in uh, Statesboro for his funeral, and it was great to meet you in person. And, um, and you know, Brad was a great United Methodist churchman you know just served the denomination in the annual conference so well and uh, i know this was breaking his heart as well and i'm just sitting there at his funeral service and just thinking why would anybody want to leave this when i saw the beauty of all the connection clergy yeah. laity community come together for a faithful servant in the life of the church his his he he was one of those unique guys he never married his bride was the church yeah. and much like bishop cannon I mean, his life was the church. And uh, I tell my friend Kelly Robertson, who's there with you in South Georgia, and so many other people, man, I miss that dude. There have been so many times I picked up the phone to call him and pick his brain because he knew more about Book of Discipline and polity and connectionalism than than I've ever known or probably forgotten. And, I mean, you know, he's mm. he's missed. I wish he was still around. Mm. Man, I appreciate you being with us, though. Thank you for inviting me. It's great. Thanks, Go ahead on down to Destin. <laughs> God bless. Thank you. Bless you too, brother. You See too. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a great guy. What a great guy. And, and here's the thing people don't know. In the United Methodist Church, there's a lot of great bishops. There are. Um, there are. You know, we get so frustrated with the bureaucracy. I get frustrated with the bureaucracy. I, I can tell. Bureaucracy <laughs> ticks me off. It is frustrating. Would not have known that about you, John. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, you know, at some point, it's like I think about our country. Yeah. Our country frustrates me. Yeah. The bureaucracy of our country frustrates me. Yes. And yet, we're not going to burn the place down, at least I hope we're not. No. <laughs> some people might want to. Yeah. But I don't think the vast majority of people are going to figure it out. We're gonna, yes. It's going to be hard work. Yes. We're going to have to get in the room together, roll our sleeves up. We're going to have to figure out how to make this work. Yes. But man, there are so many things that are beautiful in our 
uh, polity in our in in this in, in what keeps us together that also protect people protect yes. us yes like you know valuing due process in our book of discipline you know you can't I can't I can't just wake up and go yeah we're kicking you out of ministry you're gone you're gone or whatever yeah. I mean you, those things protect the vulnerable there's <laughs> protect the vulnerable I think about open you know open itineracy where I think about um, pastors friends of mine who are African American appointed to Anglo white churches mm. you know what what church there might be a few but how many churches are going to go through a search process and say you know we'd like an african-american pastor or even from south georgia i'll be honest with you a lot of them don't want a, a female pastor but it'd be the best thing in the world for them yeah 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 that's right that's right this is this is the god that um says that he that he's torn down every dividing wall Right, and so that's what we're about. That's what I love about being back in this community is that we're looking at every dividing wall and just saying we're going to love it down. We're just going to be the place of love, and we're going to love every dividing wall down. And so um, that's what we're doing. My grandmother used to say, sometimes you got to hug the people you don't like so you know how big to mm. dig the hole in the backyard. <laughs> I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Hello, neighbor, how are you? Really wanna shower you with love. Hello, neighbor, how are you? Really wanna challenge you to love.